This e-cystic fibrosis review special edition podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. 70% of U.S. hospital systems have telemedicine capability, but only seven in a thousand patient interactions before the COVID-19 pandemic were conducted by telemedicine. So from our standpoint, this is a huge opportunity for patient care. Bringing telemedicine to the CF clinic, a success story. Welcome to this special edition of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Can patients with cystic fibrosis receive appropriate care from their CF center without actually being in that center? What does it take for clinics to transform themselves to provide safer, lower contact patient services? Today, we're here to talk with two pulmonary and critical care specialists who've done it. From the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at University of Virginia Health, we're joined by Associate Professor Dr. Dana Albin and Assistant Professor Dr. Lindsay Somerville. Our learning objectives for this special edition are differentiating between full telemedicine and limited contact care, or hybrid telemedicine, and identifying which patients may benefit from telemedicine-based care. For our author's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eCysticFibrosisReview.org, and click on the Volume 9 Telemed Special Edition link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Dr. Somerville, Dr. Albon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. We know the COVID-19 pandemic is challenging how healthcare can be safely delivered, and we know how damaging a respiratory infection can be to CF-compromised lungs. So start us out at the very beginning, Dr. Albon. How did you define your goals for cystic fibrosis telemedicine? Our main goal was to provide multidisciplinary care and in the same time to minimize patient and staff exposure to COVID to make it very safe for everybody. And I'll add on to that that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Care Guidelines recommend that we have close following of our patients with clinic evaluations every three months at a cystic fibrosis specialty center with spirometry every three months as well. And we have observed in our practice that nearly a third of our patients travel over 100 miles for these appointments, which is costly. It results in time off from work and travel and sometimes even lodging expenses. Many centers that have used telemedicine in the past have improved access to care, which was especially demonstrated by Dr. Jamie Wood's group in 2016 using telemedicine for rural regions of Australia. And what they found with their group was that there was improved adherence to recommended clinic visits, improved nutritional status, decreased healthcare-associated costs, and the patients there had a 94% satisfaction rate. So from our standpoint, this is a huge opportunity for patient care. 70% of U.S. hospital systems have telemedicine capability, but only seven in a thousand patient interactions before the COVID-19 pandemic were conducted by telemedicine. So it was a widely underutilized system. In addition, we were one of the centers who was doing telemedicine even before COVID, and our team was highly trained and proficient in quality improvement projects. So it was very easy for us to rapidly switch from a in-person model of care to a telemedicine care to keep everybody safe in context of social distancing in COVID-19. Tell us first what you were able to achieve, Dr. Somerville, uh, and then I want to ask you about how you did it. Well, Bob, what we did was we created two standardized models for continuation of multidisciplinary cystic fibrosis care in the face of COVID-19. The first model is a fully telemedicine-based clinic model, primarily for ongoing routine care. 
This allows patients to continue their care with their cystic fibrosis team on schedule, uninterrupted by the pandemic, while still respecting the recommendations for social distancing. The second model is a limited contact care model, or what we call a hybrid model. This model allows patients to receive face-to-face care where it's appropriate, yet it still limits the direct contact between members of the team both with each other and with the patient. This model allows patients to still see their entire team and receive complete uninterrupted care while minimizing contact. Am I correct in remembering that you two published something about what you've done? You are correct. It was published in telemedicine and e-health. We were able to publish a feasibility study on the urgent implementation of cystic fibrosis multidisciplinary telemedicine clinic in the face of COVID-19 pandemic, and this was a single-center experience. And we have a second paper submitted to them, and it's in the process of being reviewed. The second paper is on the hybrid model and includes the hybrid process. Links to these publications can be found on our eCystic Fibrosis Review website at eCysticFibrosisReview.org. Click the Volume 9 Telemed Special Edition link. I want to turn to the obstacles to implementing these telemedicine ideas. Uh, Dr. Albin, what were some of the biggest difficulties you needed to overcome as you were developing your programs? Bob, there were multiple barriers and multiple obstacles to the program. One of the most important ones was payers. Not everybody paid for telemedicine, especially prior to COVID-19. However, Center for Medicare and Medicaid made major changes that allowed for appropriate payment for telehealth that normally would have been in person. Unfortunately, not all private insurers followed, but many of them did. In addition, the payers do not support telemedicine across state lines. Other barriers were patient support. Some patients were very enthusiastic and supportive of telemedicine. Some did not embrace it so well. And then the other major barrier was technology. We found out that not all patients have the necessary technology. So we applied for grant support to obtain more technology and to increase access to healthcare by providing the necessary devices for telemedicine. We also were able to provide spirometers for our patients. Um, 80% of our patients currently have spirometers. Part of our regular care is monitoring the lung function, the FEV1. So that's a very important piece. And then, you know, with the spirometers, there has been a supply and demand issue. One of the major home parameters is produced in Italy. And Italy was at the beginning of the pandemic in lockdown. So that created barriers to obtaining the devices in the U.S. Well, Lindsay, what do you think? What other challenges were there? So from my perspective, one of the biggest challenges that we faced was finding a way to coordinate all of the members of the team virtually in real time while still maintaining HIPAA compliance in a way that meets the patient needs. And so from that end, there were a lot of potential pitfalls along the way. That's one area I specifically want to ask you about, coordination of your team members. What was your clinic process like before telemedicine, and what did it become after? So our normal in-person clinic flow has a pre-visit planning, which is done with the patient. In the clinic, there's a clinic tracking sheet on the workroom door. There's a clinic room where we all meet and communicate in real time. Patients have spirometry done in the office. They provide sputum samples for surveillance cultures. And finally, the patient actually meets with the team face-to-face in a clinic room where they're seen and examined. So we needed to create a virtual or remote version of all of these processes. 
So our current iteration uses pre-visit planning, so that's largely unchanged. It's all still done by an electronic medical record system, which uses secure MyChart communications to the patient and a secure email chain within the team. The tracking sheet was moved to a virtual platform, so we created a de-identified invite-only Google document, which we can update in real time with the entire team remotely. It also doubles as a way to send notes to members of the team. Communication was done by HIPAA-compliant paging systems, where we're able to send group text notifications. And the team room was virtually moved to a WebEx platform where we create a workroom at the start of the day and we check in with each other. And as we leave the patient rooms, we check back in with the virtual workroom for a secure handoff. So after the visit, the team communicates with each other for follow-up needs through a secured group health system email or by direct messaging through the electronic health record. One other challenge was the sputum cultures, which, as you can imagine, creates a little bit of a hurdle. So for our patients who live under two hours away, what we did was we created a sputum drop-off setup for them. So the patients receive a sputum sample cup with instructions on how to provide a sputum culture. They take their sputum culture cup with the patient label and order form to a secure drop-off point outside the lab where they drop it off and then they call the lab and say that they've dropped off their sputum sample. So for the patient, there's no contact involved, but the sample is still able to be cultured and there's no contact involved for the patient during this process. You identified the challenges to providing telemedicine and develop processes to overcome those challenges. I'd like to talk about how your program actually works in practice, and we'll get to that when we come back in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you. And please, stay safe. Welcome back to this special edition of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. We've been talking with Dr. Dana Albin and Dr. Lindsay Somerville from the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at University of Washington Health about how they develop multidisciplinary telemedicine in their CF clinic. Dr. Somerville, you told us you developed two different telemedicine models. Uh, Take us to the clinic now, if you would, please, doctor, and show us how the first one you described, the fully telemedicine-based clinic program, how that might work in practice. Well, Bob, I'll present to you our first patient. He's a 21-year-old man who's a full-time student. All of his classes are virtual right now, and he's isolating in his apartment alone. His genotype is homozygous delta F508. His baseline FEV1 was 55% with a BMI of 20 until he started triple combination CFTR modulator therapy late last year. At his quarterly visit last time, his BMI had increased to 22. His FEV1 had improved remarkably up to 71% and he was feeling great. So he's coming up on his next appointment and he's screened according to our telehealth algorithm. The patient receives a call from our team administrator. At this time, he has no concerns and no specific needs. He indicates that he has a laptop with a camera and a strong internet connection. He has a home spirometer and a scale for weight, but he doesn't have a pulse oximeter or a blood pressure cuff. He's completely agreeable to telemedicine, and he's agreeable to doing the sputum drop-off. 
A secure WebEx appointment link is sent to him with instructions along with a pre-visit planning questionnaire. He completes the questionnaire. He would like to check in with the team psychologist and the team dietitian and social worker would like to check in with him. The team email goes out indicating that he needs blood work since he's on a new modulator and that he also needs a sputum sample. The sputum kit is mailed to him containing the collection cup, specimen bag, and order sheet, and instructions on how to drop it off. Okay, so the patient is willing, and he's got the tech to make a telemedicine call practical. Walk us through what actually happens on the day of his appointment. On the day of the appointment, the team meets in a virtual huddle room. The Google document is reviewed. A test page goes out, and the team is ready to go. The patient coordinator, in this case our respiratory therapist, checks in with the patient virtually. She records her time in on the Google document. She coaches the patient through his spirometry, and she records his FEV1 as well as his vital signs that he's able to get, in this case his his pulse and his weight. She completes her evaluation, records her checkout time on the sheet, and then notifies the team by text page that she is ready for the next team member. At the same time, she checks back into the virtual team room huddle for a brief patient handoff. The team physician, social worker, dietitian, and psychologist all individually meet with the patient, checking in and checking out as they go. At the end of the visit, the team nurse wraps up with the patient, confirms his mailing address, and the lab where he can get blood work done. Lab slips are sent to the laboratory. The patient is advised to set up a private appointment, or if an appointment's not available, to call and find out when are the non-peak hours in order to minimize contact. Sputum kit is sent to the patient containing instructions on how to collect the sample and how to drop it off. He drops it off at the secured location located outside of the laboratory, and he calls the number provided on his instruction sheet so that the laboratory staff can pick up the sample immediately. Follow-up and feedback is requested virtually, and in total, his face-to-face interactions were only one with the phlebotomist. There are a lot of different clinicians who all need to be on the video call at their appropriate times. Uh, How problematic was scheduling all of them? Well, Bob, our center is very fortunate that we have dedicated clinic time in which the entire team is available to meet with the patients. Normally, our patients are scheduled in sort of overlapping waves, and this allows everyone on the team to meet with the patient while still maximizing clinic efficiency. So when we move to a virtual model, we simply transition the same period of time into a virtual block. One thing that we've observed in communicating with other centers is that not all CF centers have a dedicated block of time for the entire team to meet with the patient. So this would certainly pose a challenge if each individual team member had to schedule a separate time to then meet with the patient. In our case, this was a relatively straightforward process because of our physical clinic model. In fact, because of the way that our clinic is structured, we're able to simultaneously operate telemedicine visits and limited contact visits during the same clinic time because we still share the same virtual huddle and virtual clinic tracking sheet. On occasions where all team members are not able to meet, for example, some of our team members have overlapping clinical obligations, team members may later contact the patient either by phone or by a secured telemedicine visit. In instances where it's only one or two members of the team who can't meet with the patient at the same time, this is sometimes actually easier as the provider has a little bit more flexibility in scheduling with the patient but would certainly be much more challenging if the entire team had to meet separately. Let's turn to the other model you developed, the hybrid model with limited contact care. So take us back to the clinic again, if you would please, Dr. Alban, and show us how a limited contact appointment can work. Yes, so I am going to give you an example of a different patient who was seen in person in what we call hybrid clinic. The patient is a 28-year-old man with two rare mutations. 
FEV1 is 39% and BMI is 18. He's not eligible for CFTR modulator therapy and is inconsistent about using his recommended therapies due to complex social factors. He works part-time and is unable to do so right now because of the pandemic lockdown. He is called and screened for his upcoming appointment, and he has access to appropriate technology, including a spirometer, but he has never used it, and he is uncomfortable using it. Physically, he feels okay, but his appetite is poor, and he's anxious and depressed about economic hardship and social isolation. A screening call raised concerns about his overall well-being, and therefore, a limited contact or hybrid visit is recommended. Pre-visit planning is carried out as described by Dr. Somerville. The same protocol is followed as for virtual visits, including the Google Doc, WebEx link, and Huddle. On the day of appointment, the patient calls from the parking garage to check into the clinic. This process was implemented by our health system. He gets vital signs and undergoes spirometry in the clinic room when ready. He provides a sputum sample. So these two different things count for two interactions. He sees his physician in the clinic room. This counts for the third interaction with staff. The team physician follows the same protocol with a virtual check-in and check-out. After she visits with the patient, she debriefs in the virtual huddle and gives a handoff. The team social worker checks in with the patient. This is the fourth interaction and sets up the WebEx meeting with the computer in the clinic room. Part of visual is confirmed, and after she concludes her visit, she checks out and debriefs the team. Remaining team members see the patient virtually from the clinic room by webcam. At the end of the visit, the team nurse wraps up the visit, and he gets lab done before he leaves. This is the sixth in-person interaction. Normal clinic visit is up to 11 interactions. Uh, some team members have no direct interactions with the patient, and team members have no direct interactions with each other. In the clinic, the social worker operates from a private office. The team nurse and physician work at separate workstations with appropriate distancing. So this creates a very safe environment for team members. No other team members are physically available in the clinic. Dr. Albin, Dr. Somerville, I want to thank you both for sharing the story of your telemedicine success today. Let's wrap things up now by revisiting our learning objectives in light of our discussion. Our first learning objective is differentiating between full telemedicine and limited contact care visits, or as you've called it, hybrid telemedicine. Dr. Somerville, what are the key things our listeners need to know? Well, Bob, full telemedicine is a clinic model that allows care of the patient to be performed remotely using a secured online series of interactions. The patient can be seen from their own home and the care team from their own individual offices. Limited contact visits are visits in which the patient is present in clinic and seen face-to-face only by essential team members with whom hands-on contact is required, such as the physician or the respiratory therapist. Most of the interactions by the care team are done by a secured online connection with a webcam set up in the room. This limits the amount of physical contact between the care providers with each other and with the patient. And finally, a full telemedicine clinic is an excellent option for improving access to care, not just in the era of COVID-19, but also during normal conditions for patients who may not have easy access to care. Hybrid telemedicine, on the other hand, has more limited utility to times where minimal contact is critical, such as during a pandemic like this one, or for the safety of certain team members, for example, if a team member is immune-compromised themselves. 
Thank you, Dr. Somerville. And our second learning objective, identifying which patients may benefit from telemedicine-based care. Dr. Albin, what are the most important points for our listeners to remember? That's a very good question. Patients eligible for telemedicine need to be screened very carefully. Patients who are eligible for full telemedicine should meet key criteria. One, they need to be able to provide a reliable medical history. Two, have access to appropriate technology for the visit. Three, be symptom-free or not have symptoms concerning for an acute exacerbation. And four, ideally, should have access to a home spirometer. These conditions are not all-inclusive. Patients might need to meet other criteria in order to be eligible for full telemedicine. Hybrid telemedicine clinics should be considered when a patient does not meet screening criteria for full telemedicine as a means to provide excellent ongoing care while still respecting social distancing and other precautions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Albin. One final question, doctors. Based on your experience, what specific recommendations do you have for other clinics who may want to use your model as a template for their own practices? Dr. Somerville? I would strongly encourage the use of a quality improvement model to make changes. Telemedicine is extremely rewarding, but it's also still relatively new waters. And so it's really important to have an organized way of implementing small changes and assessing the results. We use the PDSA model or Plan, Do, Study, Act, which is a system in which we can make multiple cycle changes. So we're currently on the 16th PDSA cycle. And one thing also that I would encourage is to constantly seek feedback, both from patients and team members, in order to adapt changes to make your process more streamlined. Our patient partners have been absolutely instrumental in shaping this process. One example that immediately comes to mind is our blood work collection system that we've developed, which was essentially shaped by our nurse coordinator in direct contact with our patient partners. So they were really able to make that process come together. We also actively seek feedback in post-visit surveys on how to improve the process as well. Dr. Albin? I will start by reiterating what Dr. Somerville said. I think one of the most important parts of telemedicine is to continue the process of improvement so that we can easily adapt to social and epidemiological pressures and also to learn from the patient and respect patient's wishes. It's also important to collaborate with the larger center network and learn from other centers and other teams. From the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center at University of Virginia Health, Dr. Dana Albin, Dr. Lindsay Somerville, thank you both for participating in this special edition of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Thank you so much, Bob, for having us here. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Bob, thank you so much for having us. This has been a real pleasure. And if I may, I want to take a moment to thank our multidisciplinary team as well for allowing this work to happen, including our respiratory therapist, Martina Compton, our dietitian, Lucy Gettle, social worker, Morgan Soper, quality improvement officer, Rhonda List, clinical psychologist, Heather Brushwine, team administrator, Rachel Turner, our nurse coordinator, Alyssa Starheim, and our patient partners, Lauren Williamson and Jason Conyers. And Dana, I also want to thank you especially for being such a wonderful mentor. It's an honor and a great joy to take care of this remarkable group of people, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this team, and it was a pleasure being here for this interview. Thank you so much. For E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ecf.dkbmed.com.
Vertex.com. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, GEC USA, and Mylan. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.